You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hi, I'm your inner dream monologue, and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Break It Down Podcast. Matt Carter here, but I know you both knew that this was the Break It Down Podcast and that my name was Matt Carter. It's kind of redundant to spend the beginning of the show telling you that, but I did it nonetheless. Uh, today's show is brought to you by Broadcast Supply Worldwide. They're where I get my podcasting and audio gear. They're awesome. Their website is bswusa.com, and if you go there and you buy anything in their podcasting category at all, they'll give you 10% off if you enter the promo code DOWN, D-O-W-N. The same thing or something similar to that is true if you go to joeysturgistones.com. Joey Sturgis makes audio software and plugins that are great and useful, and you should go check them out. And if you do and buy one, you can get 20% off just because you listen to the show, and the the uh, promo code for that is PODCAST20. All right, so i got a couple of things I want to tell you about and they're both tour date related things so i've i'm in two bands one of them is called emory again i guess most people know that uh but we've just put up a bunch of tour dates that we're doing through you know most of the summer now and there'll be a few more added eventually but we're doing a tour we're gonna try and just spend the whole year doing shows that are very very cheap like ten dollars we did some special vip and expensive shows all last year and this year we want to make it as cheap as possible we're cutting out the booking agents and promoters renting the venues we're going to sell tickets directly to y'all um y'all will show up it'll be a big show and it's going to be a lot of fun i'm very very happy with where our live show is right now and what it sounds like uh, and I don't want you to miss it, especially with that opportunity. You can buy a couple of tickets, buy some for a friend and a neighbor uh, and show up. But you can see those tour dates at emorymusic.com. Now, music that we, Toby and I, who is in Emory, have been writing for a long time, uh, sometimes doesn't turn out like Emory. Maybe it's not as aggressive or heavy or if it's just different or just doesn't fit into Emory. So we made another band. Some people call that a side project, and it's called Matt and Toby. Very clever. And so we put out an album a few years ago on Tooth and Nail, and we're about to put out another album uh, ourselves here. And it's going to be really good. So it's almost finished, and we have tour dates for that, and we're ramping up to, to really do some stuff with that this year. And you can find, for now, all I want you to do is pay attention to the tour dates and stay tuned for more record news. I'll tell you about the album very, very soon. But we're going to be on the East Coast in May doing tour dates with The Classic Crime and a band called Civilian. And you can come see us on that. You can go to theclassiccrime.com and find the tour dates there and come 
say hey and hang out. And also we got a show in Seattle on April 27th, which is coming up really, really soon at Numos. I'm looking forward to that one, except for I got to get going to practice and learn the songs and pick out the set list. So that's kind of what I'm up to. And yeah, the first show is April 27th, Seattle, classiccrime.com. Speaking of Seattle, my guest today, the person I'm going to talk to is a good friend of mine and somebody that I respect very much. And they're from Seattle, so I get to talk to him in person. His name is Mike Wilkerson. Now, I met Mike, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, as he is uh, someone who was involved at the church that I went to for a really long time. That church is called Mars Hill. A lot of people know about it, and a lot of people don't. So I'll give you just this really quick rundown, and uh, you know, you can uh, listen to the episode and find out more about it or skip it. Like I always say, feel free to skip any episodes you like. Um, let, make sure you play it, though, so I get, like, the play count goes up, but you don't have to actually listen. You can, like, put it on mute and listen. Um, so Mars Hill Church is a place that I went for about 10 years. It started as a, a small thing and grew to be an extremely large church, and needless to say, there was some problems there and problems in the culture at that church, and a lot of it stemmed from, the, it seems that a lot of it stemmed from the leader, Mark Driscoll there. Uh, Mike Wilkerson is someone who was there from very near the beginning and had really great insight to what happened and how it happened. Uh, and he's been uh, relatively quiet, as have many people since things have fell apart with that church. And it uh, kind of, it just kind of evaporated. It kind of fell apart when, when the leader, Mark Driscoll, left. And so... Uh, I'm really, really interested in the story and what happened there, as I think it points a lot to problems in cultures, business cultures, church cultures, power structures, things like that. The things that happened there uh, are a prototype for things that happen everywhere, and they're, they're really, really interesting. So in this episode, we don't really even get into the story or the specifics about that at all. All we do is kind of discuss how stuff works and, uh, you know, epistemology and how people make sense of stories and how they know the things that they know and how they might should act uh, in light of that. So Mike is extremely sharp. He's an engineering uh, guy. He's a computer engineer, mathematician guy. He's also a musician. He understands music probably in, in a similar way that I do. And then, but his main thing he's always been involved in, as I've known him and been involved with him, is counseling and helping other people. So he's got this really, what I think is a unique uh, and super cool approach to helping people, which is kind of rooted in how things work and how you understand people and how you understand things. And it's almost engineering related. So this conversation circles around all of those topics. And that's really all it is. It's not a, it's, this is not Mike's story or all the things that happen behind the scenes. Although I think we will do some of that at, at a future time. So just so you know, this is a topic that I'm interested in, so it'll come up once and again. And that's how I designed the show is just to be what I'm interested in interested in and talk to the people that I have genuine questions for. And I have a lot for Mike. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Oh yeah. And Mike does a podcast called Redemption Walk. So you can find out more about him there or redemptiongroups.com is the ministry that he runs. So I highly recommend following him and seeing what he's up to. I think what he does is very useful and valuable. So check it out. Break it down, Dada. Break it down. Oh, break it down. Break it down. So I guess we can talk about story or narrative or epistemology or mm -hmm. power dynamics break or institutions down, or oh, well, anything like that today. Break it down. Break it down. Break it So, it, you know, to me, whenever I sit down and talk with you, it doesn't, I don't even feel like we really, really get that far because you're a, a 
I guess, a thinker. I, I don't know if you'd describe yourself as a thinker, would you? I would definitely describe myself as a thinker. I you like, like to sit by yourself and think about stuff? I do. It's yeah. one of my favorite things to do. I think it might be a lost <laughs> thing with the uh, te- technologically speaking these days. I'm, I was thinking that about that the other day. If there were smartphones, for instance, which I'm not demonizing them, how many brilliant th- Plato or Aristotle or Einstein's would have just been distracted the moment they had their b- big idea? Like, could have just been lost. Yeah. Like, maybe certain things take two hours of sitting and thinking to get there, and maybe nobody does that anymore. Yeah, maybe. On the other hand, um, so many more pieces of, of information, bits of knowledge from diverse fields mm-hmm. would have also come into their awareness. That's true. That they would have been able to synthesize when they did sit down to think. You know, nice they, counterpoint there. They, yeah, I got a counterpoint for you. Um, and so, actually, I, I, I wouldn't want to make it yes i like to think but it's not like i'm sitting yeah. somewhere in silence and solitude just thinking either yeah. actually you know a lot of my thinking happens as i'm wrestling my way through uh, a book or or some or some topic it's usually the it's not a blissful peaceful mind like water kind of thinking it's yeah. it's usually a more of an agonizing wrestling there's some some issue in life. I, I, I've said a number of times, I, I posted something on Good Friday the other day, um, reading N.T. Wright's book, The Day the Revolution Began on the Meaning of the, the Crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And I posted on there, it is Good Friday, but actually I'm not reading this for the occasion of Good Friday. I, I was reading for survival. Mm-hmm. And that's what I find myself doing a lot is reading for survival, thinking for survival. So it's it's really for survival <laughs> is the way I think about it. it it's not for luxury or, mm-hmm. you know, so, I don't know if that's I have a, that. That's really. I don't know if I have that much in common with Plato at that point. No, maybe not. But uh, I mean, it's survival. But maybe thinking. you do. I mean, so essentially, you're you certainly you're an analytical person. You're a computery, programmy. This is what I think is interesting about you. Is I know you as a guy who is, does teaches and studies counseling and seems to be completely driven by making impact on other people. Uh, it seems to be your almost sole focus, but your mind seems to work entirely like on a how does this work computer yeah. code level. I think so. Which it, is a little at odds it, yeah. with the just the compassionate counselor out there. You're ultra rational for one, I find. Well, I, I want to say thank you, I guess. Well, I, it's a compliment <laughs> coming from me. <laughs> Although sometimes when people have told me those things, it's really not been a compliment. But it is a bit of a paradox. How did I get into doing pastoral counseling type work from software engineering? Yeah. And actually before software, it was mathematics. When I was in college, my undergraduate training was in mathematics and computer information science. But when I met Trisha, my wife... She thought she said she always thought she was going to marry a pastor, and I said, "Well, I'm not going to be a pastor. I'm going to be a mathematician." Uh-huh. And I remember, you know, the movie Dead Poet Society when they mm-hmm. talked about honey, uh, the poetry dripping like honey on their tongues. That was mathematics for me. I mean, I just absolutely yeah. was intoxicated with mathematics, and I didn't care if it seemed to matter in you know daily life uh-huh. or whatever. It just was enthralling to me to have my head in the the maths of the universe, but. Um, so then into software engineering and then into pastoring, how did all that work? But I think part of how it works is um, I wrote this mission statement. I took this class on on leadership in, mm-hmm. in a church context um, <clears throat> years ago, maybe, I don't know, 14 years ago. Um, and I had, we had to write this little personal mission statement. And I think mine was something like, 
build systems, build people, build people systems. There you go. That makes sense. Yeah. And I wrote, that, my language I wrote that as a software engineer uh-huh. who was, was kind of moving into some kind of volunteer ministry capacities in the church. Mm-hmm. But I didn't actually have to change the mission statement once I was full-time as a pastor and, and, mm-hmm. and, and then got into pastoral counseling. Mm-hmm. It still was build systems, build people, build people systems. Right. And so, and even actually there's a, there's a tech, startup that I'm working on on the side, if there is such a thing as the side. Um, and in a way, it, it actually still fits in the same in the same mm-hmm. space. So I think understanding something about how people work helps me to be, um, you know, to extend some care to people. Uh, and so in a way, it's, yeah. I, I've called it pastoral engineering. It's really pastoral engineering, there you go. It's really all the same thing. Yeah, well, that's no wonder I've always been so attracted to your mindset, um, but I have been. And to me, I see the real through line there. I'd say it's more uh, egg chicken on that or whatever that would mean, but <laughs> I feel like you probably were mathematical and analytical and then discovered its useful application toward people and humans in a, working in a benevolent way because you probably just understood how yeah. stuff worked and, and I, <clears> wanted to know the thing behind the thing and then you found that which is cl- once you realize that oh I understand how this person works or what would maybe be helpful to them then it be- then you're like wait a second I think I understand how this works mm-hmm. versus somebody that is completely driven by I want to help people I want to help people how do I do it go learn mathematics doesn't work that way mm-hmm. you would never go back and learn mathematics or analytical systems thinking in order to be a better empathetic mm-hmm. counselor so I think I think I actually love is a through line through all of mm-hmm. that, which might sound, you know, really left field, but um, <clears throat> it seems like sometimes we can pit against one another the idea of, you know, the analysis and the engineering side of that, if you will, and the people side of that, mm-hmm. if you will. But if if love compels all of that, it really all becomes different expressions of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And um, Well, people are averse to saying you're engineering stuff when you're talking about people, you know, they feel like, uh, you know, same as the, the word manipulate or, yeah. you know, those, it gets into a territory where people thought, well, I don't want some robot counseling me. Exactly. But I mean, for me, it's actually been a process of growing in, in love, mm-hmm. um, loving God and what he's made and how things are designed, but also learning how to love people. And, uh, and it's just all this, it's all one thing. And basically, mm-hmm. so, uh, for me, as an engineering-minded type of person, probably growing in love has been a very different process than somebody who maybe was more, uh, I was going to say more artistically minded, but actually I have an artistic mindedness as well. I mean, I, I'm a musician and I've written music and mm-hmm. played on records. and Drummer. Drummer and mm-hmm. played guitar and piano and, you know, marching band and mm-hmm. Not that marching band is an art, but anyway. Do y'all, so, did you find music it makes sense on a fundamental level to you in the way that I do? Yeah, and so I yeah. So when I've heard you talk about kind of the same thing, and this is why we might connect so well, I mm-hmm. think, is I've heard you talk about how you just you like to learn how things work, and that's kind of an engineering mindset to mm-hmm. how does the music work. How does the song hook work? Right. What about the chord progression mm-hmm. works and the di- the dynamics of it? You know, how do you craft the song that's going to work? That's going to produce the effect, engineered that, effect, that, that, that you know. Effect, yeah. And and so it, you know, somebody could say, oh well, you're you're um you know you're taking all the mystery and the art out of it or whatever. But I'm thinking actually I don't know. I, I think that may just be how you do it as a pro sometimes. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have to negate the artistry of it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but I loved studying music theory, for example, because it gave me some new ways. When I say study, I don't mean like, you know, in school, I just mean self-taught. The yep. things that I learned about music theory helped me play mm-hmm. better and differently on a piano or with my guitar. Yep. And I, I actually, one of the songs that, that we recorded years ago at Mars Hill, um, one of the lines that's my favorite, I, I actually composed that with a random number generator um, because I was trying to kind of push myself out of some musical and melodic ruts uh-huh. that I was in. So I just randomized some aspects of what I was yeah. doing. And we ended up with something <clears throat> that I liked the sound of it. Yeah. I do I, the same thing. I wouldn't have got there without a pair of dice. Yes. So. Yeah, I do the same thing. Well, I'll think of a pattern and see then if I can retro force it. Like think of a pattern, not like up in my head, but just like a numerical pattern or mm-hmm. an idea and then see if I can turn that into something that is catchy or, or force mm-hmm. it in or, mm-hmm. you know, fit it and then build off of that, mm-hmm. you know, just a technical idea and then turn it into art, basically. It's kind of a fun fun thing to do. Yeah, so to me, that's not, that's not divorced from love. There's mm-hmm. something driving you toward something good. You're trying to make something that's good and pleasing and beautiful, you know, has this aesthetic, mm-hmm. aesthetically pleasing quality to it. Uh, and and so what if you have analyzed it enough to understand how a thing works right. and you you leverage that to make something beautiful? I mean, I, I've told people before when we're talking about uh, when I'm training people to do some basic people helping stuff in pastoral counseling in the church, there's sometimes people have this dichotomy in mind between what the Holy Spirit does, which sometimes we can just reduce that to whatever's kind of emotional and spontaneous or whatever, and and pit that against the idea of what's designed, how humans are designed, mm-hmm. how skill works, skill with helping people. And what I want to say is, hello, I mean, who's the engineer that designed all of creation? Mm-hmm. Y- you can't pit the, the the live, you know, risky, adventurous human or personal i want to say aspects of the spirit's work you can't pit that against his masterful design mm-hmm. you know yeah right and so uh they're just not separate topics yeah. it, it really but yeah, can it be together. but but it nonetheless those things can be those those specific designs and quirks and things that other people don't understand how humans work uh, and maybe this segues us a little bit lend to exploitation of those and manipulation mm. though those same things that you can understand as an engineer about how people work and a group size and the way to talk to somebody you can take those things to the degree which is what makes people wary because they can be certainly abused yeah and so to use uh i wish i had a better analogy for this but it's just it's just the one that's obvious to me but you have the same parallel between how you woo a woman in mm-hmm. courtship and you build a relationship uh-huh. and you develop trust and all the layers of knowing a person, you know, not reducing a person to sex. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, I believe in marriage, you know, it culminates in a flourishing of a sexual relationship as well. Uh-huh. But you could exploit a lot of those rhythms. Pickup um, artists do that. They write yeah, books about it. You could exploit yeah. a lot of those same things to just get sex. Yeah. And what you've done is actually reduced that other person to sex before you even mm-hmm. begin the first manipulation because you have one goal in mind and mm-hmm. it's not knowing and being known by that person. It's just sex, you know? Yeah. But the exact same mechanics, if you want to say that, yes. could go into either. Which is maybe why people get a little skittish when you're speaking in, the, in those terms of engineering and things like that. 
Yeah, you know what because I mean? there's there's some power dynamics involved, yeah. aren't there? Because mm-hmm. when you kind of know how a thing works, you're now empowered to uh, to, to leverage that knowledge to get what you want. Mm-hmm. And that's why I come back to love. If what you want is beneficial to the other, that's a good thing. Because yeah. we're designed, I believe, by God to move in this world um, compelled by love to see goodness flourish in creation. We're supposed to be loving engineers from the beginning. If you, I mean, it's the way I think about it. Mm-hmm. But if you have the technical know-how without the love, you are going to exploit creation. You're going to hurt people. I mean, I think I just basically told the history of the world right yeah, there. I mean, you go all the way to Genesis yeah. 1 to 3, and then we've been living out of that ever yeah. since. So, um, Well, but so the thing about that is you the, – the next big enemy you've got is self-deception then because when you say love, you, got, you <laughs> yes. say, okay, love then, yeah. or that's my premise. Or like, for instance, I, I'm relatively persuasive, and I tell myself, but I'm good, so it's okay. Yeah. Of course you pers- believe that you're right. – Outcomes that you want to right. achieve, but but so does everybody. So I That's know well, right. I'm benevolent, but if you use this for bad, it would be bad. Yeah. But their self deception is a huge problem. So, so and and you know just to jump in back into or onto the topic of Mars Hill and that kind of thing with the power, power dynamics and self deception, and I would really like to know some of your take as well as story, whatever we can fit in in the amount of time we'll be able to talk. The the way those kind of things kind of fit together in that you, when you get into the mentality, which it seems like the church system and a lot of power structures get into a mode of the ends justify the means. So mm-hmm. you may say, oh, well, we're here to love or get people saved or do this thing. But, but if you could self, if that's not what you're stating to be true isn't actually true, or if you're unaware that your real motives are other ones, now you're persuading and you have this power system and structure that's taking a bunch of people down a road that's not even what everybody thinks it's supposed to be. Yeah. And then now we're off on, down on a bad road, no? Yeah, absolutely. So the, some of the language that, um, that I've been using for that conversation, I learned from my friend Daniel, uh, who's on the Redemption Walk podcast with me. But, um, and he got it from a professor, Peter Chaw, talking about church culture and pointing out the difference between an explicit theology versus an implicit theology. And the explicit Mm -hmm. theology is what you say your goals are. It's what you say you believe. It's what gets spoken from a pulpit. It's Mm -hmm. what gets, it's in your statement on your website, you know, your doctrine statement and all of that. It's what you say you believe. The implicit theology is what actually happens. It's what, it's what gets carried out functionally um, in the meetings, you know, when somebody's fired or, Uh, not just the bad things, but all the good things, all the actual stuff that happens in the life of a mm-hmm. community. Um, that, that's just the, that's the honest, raw reality of what we actually believe because it's, it's what's driving us to, to behave in certain ways. And, and sometimes um, <clears throat> you're talking about self-deception. So I think sometimes we fail to see what we actually believe and the way that we mm-hmm. function and the implicit theology because we tell ourselves right. we're doing whatever this thing is that's in the explicit theology. And so we're actually growing darkened in our minds and our understandings. We're suppressing, uh, really, we're, we're suppressing sinful ways of relating because we're telling ourselves that ultimately, you know, it's either that it's for the greater good or this very distorted way of relating is actually somehow love or those yes. kinds of things, you know? And so I had a seminary professor once point out that, you know, the worst sins 
that we commit are, well, or maybe like the most compelling temptations or something like that. It has to do with sins to virtue. In other words, like we just want to do this right thing. And so um, it's so dangerous because that can so easily justify really doing horrible things. Well, like everybody in the mafia trying to feed their family is an example of that, I suppose of that, right? so. <laughs> I haven't heard their particular justification. Well, just anybody, like but, the, the feed the family one. It's like I always think that's such a weird metaphor. It's not, I don't think starvation is ever really the, the thing you're talking about there, but you just convince yourself how strong I love my family. I'll do whatever it takes, and, and, and then yet, you'll do a I lot mean, of stuff. I, I, can't, I, don't, I can't escape that either. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm right in the midst of I'm very, actually very vulnerable to that right yep. now because in a couple of months, I don't know what I'm going to do for a living. I don't even know what career I'm going to have in about two months from right now. That's just where I'm at right now. And so one thing I read in this book, um, I Told Me So, is a book on Uh self-deception. He talks about if you want to find where self-deception might be at work, look for the places in your life where the stakes are the highest. There you go. That's really helpful. Because you make these negotiations inside yourself to deal with the high stakes. Yeah. And you could just end up lying to yourself. And the thing with self-deception is that you make this deal inside yourself that you don't realize you're lying to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, as George Costanza, I think, said on Seinfeld, it's not a lie if, if you, you believe, believe it. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is, that's funny it's for a reason. It's the best way. It's the most effective way to lie for sure. <laughs> that's <laughs> funny yeah. for a reason, you know. So. If it's just, just all in commitment, it's the best way, it's the best yeah. way to lie for sure. Yeah. Most so, effective. I mean, I, to, to come back to the, what I say, I, I can't get away from the, the, the feed the family kind mm-hmm. of a thing. There is a survival instinct right. in that. And if you think that's under threat and the thing that you're doing is, is for this good purpose, which is for the family. So the question is, are you willing to sin in order to feed your yeah. family. I mean, there can get some messy so, ethics in there. What ethical sacrifices would you make? It doesn't matter if it's sin or or crime or yeah. embezzlement. I bet. I mean, if you find every criminal and ask them what they were doing, they'll tell you something that mm-hmm. probably makes sense. Well, I'd had to because mm-hmm. of some virtue-like reason. I bet, you, mm-hmm. I bet you'd find that more often than I just like committing crimes and hurting people. Mm-hmm. Nobody says that. So it's pretty important then, since I think we're all prone to that process in our own minds, that we actually live in community and we're listening mm-hmm. to people who, who help us see ourselves um, I remember years ago hearing Paul Tripp teach on uh, the difference between physical blindness and spiritual blindness. Hebrews 3 talks about exhorting one another so that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Mm-hmm. And when he teaches on that, he talks about you know, sin blinds us, and this is why we need community. We need people helping us to see Absolutely. ourselves. Um, uh, so, but he was saying the difference between the physical blindness and the spiritual blindness is with physical blindness, you know you're blind. Yeah, you know you can't see. Yeah, I need to braille, and and so you you learn how to manage life safely using your other senses and and whatever to to accommodate. You don't that, try to be an airline pilot. Yeah, yeah. Um, but with spiritual blindness, you think you see. In fact, the the emotional psychological experience of spiritual blindness is experiencing a kind of like extra awareness of of seeing and focus. Like you really think that you see. And just inside your own mind, it's like the movie Inception. How do you know whether this is the dream right. or this is the real thing? Well, for them, they have to spin a little whatever and see if it wobbles in the right way, you know? Um, but Hebrews is saying we actually need community helping us to see more clearly what's really going on. Because if we just get stuck inside of our own minds, I mean... It's just, 
everybody has the beautiful mind eventually in yep. order to reference that <clears throat> that story that movie um so anyway uh spiritual blindness you think you see but actually mm-hmm. you're going blind and then a whole community i think can actually go blind mm-hmm. and i think that in some very significant ways that that did happen at mars hill yeah yeah, so I mean, you know, we it's there's just nothing short of saying that everybody there is complicit. And I, I guess I, now I'm said complicit. I want to say the implicit word too. We're complicit in the implicit problems that were there as what is something that I feel like, and that a lot of people have been able to try to talk about and understand. But what's been shocking to me is that it's taken so long. To even kind of get a grip on a grip on what was going on there, or what we were part of, or our culpability, or even just to be for people like you to even be able to talk about it, it's been so slow. Why do you think that is? Like you're just now hearing. I mean, I, there was a people you know during the raw conflict that would speak out or say things or whatever. But there's been very. It's been just relatively really quiet from a lot of people like you who are starting to speak now, and I, I just want to know why. Well, I don't have God's answer to why, but I'm, I'm starting to come to grips with my own answers. Um, <clears throat> so as a backdrop, one of the things that I've spent the most time thinking about over the last five years is epistemology. So how do we know anything? And we don't have time to go into all of that. Maybe someday we will. But um, one one little bit of that is this growing awareness that the way we know things involves groping about and grasping at different clues to form a pattern and then a picture emerges and then we we don't just look at that picture there's a way in which you know you know when you talk about um diet and and and, and people will say you are what you eat uh-huh so i'm definitely going to mix metaphors here but it's like you eat the clues so it's actually something that gets inside you and changes something about who Clues you are. Clues of, of, of what? Of everything. Of reality itself. Uh, yeah, I'll come back around to okay. that to give some examples. But you've got these clues of basically like, what is going on here? And it gets inside of you and actually changes your vision. So you start to look at the world differently, in a sense, through these clues. And then suddenly, it's like, I, I basically have learned a lot of this from Esther Meek in her book. So mm-hmm. pretty much everything I say... There's other stuff I've read too, but like a lot of it is credit to her. And she she uses as a metaphor this um, those three D computer generated puzzles when you look at it and there's a there's a dolphin there. Magic but it eye. Just looks, magic yeah. eye, thank you, yes. And so you look at that and it's not until you in a sense start looking through the static that the picture emerges mm-hmm. and you know that you're looking at a dolphin because it just, and you know, it's not an accident. You are seeing the pattern that is intended to, to be seen there. But if you just look at it as a, as a object that you're trying to, mm-hmm. to see, you can't see it. You only see it when you look through the clues, so to speak. It's just a different kind of perspective. Yeah, you're not looking at the pixels of yeah. color themselves. It's not. It's more abstract than that. It's, you, it's on a different dimension it, than that. It's a metaphor for looking through something that you've internalized. The, I, the I think, facts. I think piece uh, of fact pieces or whatever. yeah lenses on glasses. I think is a, is another. I mean, metaphors just capture little bits and pieces mm-hmm. of an idea. No, no metaphor is perfect, but. Lenses kind of works the same way. Um, you can't see reality outside of your head looking at the back of the lenses in your glasses. It only They only help you to see when you look through them. You rely upon 
what those lenses are doing to change the biological mechanism in your eyes and in your brain. Mm -hmm. And it's through that shift of your basic way that you're looking at things that you then see whatever's beyond the lenses clearly. And so to come back to your question, why has it taken so long? It's because for different ones of us, for different reasons, putting together all the clues and the think of it like a puzzle, yeah. putting together all the puzzle pieces of our, you know, there's things that you experience and you're like, ah, but I don't know if that means this. And the, this is like yeah. the worst possible case. You know, I, yeah, he said that really awful sounding thing, but I don't think it means everything's awful in general. Mm -hmm. Or you hear the rumor about this, somebody who was really harmed by some words maybe that Mark said. And you're like, yeah, something like that probably happened, but I don't think it means this. You know, it's not the worst case scenario. So yeah. those puzzle pieces don't, surely they don't put together this picture that's really, truly horrible. Yeah. Um, you know, and then you hear some things in a sermon that might sound off and then some, some, something, some blogger mm -hmm. posts something or Warren Throckmorton posts something and, and you go to his blog and you see, you know, in the midst of what he's writing, you see ads for, you know, diet pills or whatever, just things that just don't look like, um, wow. yeah. you know, kind of trustworthy stuff. And you're like, eh. and then you have clues there too. You know, you think, yeah, there's definitely is, it, something is this there. really trustworthy though? Because I mean, it's like, there's something to what's being said here. But on the other hand, I don't know if I trust mm. him. I don't know if I trust this website. And we're all, we're all trying to put these clues together and try to make the most sense of it. And in the midst of all of that, Mark is a very gifted, powerful, compelling communicator. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the clues you're getting is uh, you, could, you could listen for a long time and just think, ah, it's down to earth and there's powerful theological truth. Mm -hmm. excuse me, powerful theological truths here. Some of the clues that I experienced in community was genuine authenticity in deep, the real deal of the Christian life that I hadn't experienced in a church community before. And I, I have friends and family who don't experience the level of depth of real relationship. And so those are some of the clues yeah. too. And how do you get all those puzzle pieces to fit together into coherent pattern? It's like, it, <laughs> and so different people just, over the years, kind of lean on one side of that or the other, and then we act out of what we know. And so, do I know what's going on here? I mean, should I well, but leave? Should see, I go? That's should your I analytical confront? Thing, should though, I? Most people aren't that way. Most people they just know. <laughs> they think they know right away. Most people are relatively impulsive and looking for right just answers that make sense. Because that's the whole thing about story and narrative is you. I guess unconsciously make a narrative. Most people don't analyze on the the way that you're doing there. They but just I go, didn't analyze the decade and a half or whatever that I was mm -hmm. at Marcel. I wasn't analyzing like this. The way I'm talking right now, I'm trying to give an account yeah. for what experience yes. happened. But it wasn't. I wasn't using this framework but, to analyze that whole time. But I so, was confused and and mm -hmm. groping about in the dark trying to figure out what in the world is going on. That's here. right. That's that no, was my that's actual the, lived yeah, experience. And I resonate with that. But the thing that's Interesting is how this stuff kind of predates wherever we're at now with like truth and news and fake news and post-truth. Yes. Like this is like now seeing all this stuff happen in the mainstream, it's like, wait a minute, this is exactly what we just had where I was, I heard that, but is that really true? It's but like, I know this, but if I'm thinking about it, yes. I know that that person has an agenda now because I'm, I'm clued into all that. Like we've been clued into this 
reality that the truth is a little more up for grabs than you would have thought. And really what's behind it is the way we try to make story to make ourselves feel good when there maybe is no story, or at least we don't have access to what the real narrative ever is. We just don't really have that. And that's I, I feel like the apparent. whole world, particularly the United States, is going through the same process mm-hmm. that I just survived, yeah. and I'm still kind of surviving. And it's like, really? The whole world is now going to go through the same cycle all over again. Yeah. And and but probably the reality is is that this is just the cycle throughout all time. Yeah, I think I mean, so too. It's just that I'm more I think I'm more aware of it now uh than before. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and then that one instead of being national political, it's extre- this is the, the difference is it's extremely personal. Like this is dynamics of me and you and family and people you work with and people you go to church with and your employers and that's it's and having those same kind of conflicts that we do with Russia and mm-hmm. Trump. But what's but, similar whatever but that what's is, similar but, is there's people on various sides of the conversation in both the, in the Marshall Church thing and in the national political scene that are frustrated with other people saying, "Can't you see See what I'm seeing yes, here? Yes. I can't believe you can't see it. Yeah. And the fact that you can't see it means you're immoral, you know, or yeah. you're demon possessed, or you're evil, or you're whatever. And the reality is, we all see things so differently because we're looking at it from different perspectives. We bring, we've internalized different clues over times, and some of us are willfully suppressing things, mm-hmm. and some of us aren't doing it in a consciously willful way. But there's too much at stake for us to admit. And so it's just at an unconscious level, which is where you know a lot of the self-deception happens. Uh, and, and so because of all of these factors coming together, we really all do see different things. So we really do know different realities, and then we live out of those different realities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a place where I think it is actually very similar, what happened in the, in the church situation and in the, in the national situation. And it both end up being very personal because knowing anything is very personal. Yeah, I mean, if you are what you eat, and that's true for these clues, it means the way that you I know are this. What you know, you are what you yeah. know. So the way that I know this, I feel it in my guts. It's yeah. not just an you engineering thing. It, your yes, it's visceral. Yeah, my knowing is bodily visceral. I feel in my guts the insult of somebody knowing something that contradicts or subverts what I know, because what yes. I know is very personal to me. So anyway, I, I, there's a lot of similarity between mm-hmm. the two cultural moments the the problem i have with the i don't know how to balance slow to speak or being obnoxious and all those things but the problem is failure to try to it just seems like the powerful or the abusers typically have the advantage because they do speak and they wind up with the benefit of the doubt and then the other people are trying to make sense out of it don't have any real way to to combat that so just that's the thing that i found so un unfortunate is the powerful or the abusers in, in most in these situations are rewarded that I found that really that's very difficult it's true yeah I mean yes just that is just true and of course I, I can also see the the pendulum can swing on the other side too uh-huh. where power can shift where now anybody who tells a story of I have been abused mm-hmm. once the tipping point happens where now you're listening on that side then then there actually is a power, I think, on that side too. Yeah. If you tell an abuse story, you're probably correct. And actually, I mean, I still think that that's more likely true because it's still, there's so much shame in in coming out and talking about uh, a yeah. way of having been victimized or abused um, that I'm going to be listening. I'm going to be putting greater weight there. But I could also zoom out and, 
actually can see there is a kind of power dynamic that can happen on both sides. Because mm-hmm. I'm aware of the fact that I find the story of an abuse victim that that's that's I mean it's compellingly told and it seems you know it seems genuine. That is compelling to me. In other words, it has a powerful influence on me. Mm-hmm. So in other words, there is actually a power in that story being told. Um, so there's power on both sides. Yeah. Well, I mean, of different of different sorts. I think. Well, you know, I like to say, you know, the idea of power in numbers or power to the people or whatever. But the the that goes haywire in a mob mentality, for instance, a free for all. Yeah. That's you know, the diffusion of responsibility. You know, those things when you get too many people just on a train, they could do a lot of damage too. Yeah. You know, to some to. Whatever, but in, in human history, like you said, I guess this is the story of everything: is power, and then counterbalance, and of course, corruption and abuse are just, of course, are just there. And then the the most powerful or the most talented at those things seem to rise to the top. But then, in all of human history, this is why I'm excited about it and think it matters and is worth spending time on, is because in all of human history, the only means for things to change have almost entirely been violent like mm-hmm. physically violent. Mm-hmm. And so now this is the first time when I think there's change that can happen that still can be rough or aggressive or, you know, dangerous, but it's less or not. It could be nonviolent. Like the French Revolution, just there's nothing else they could do, go cut people's heads off at, at some point. And so we don't we have better means than that. But eventually even that happens. You know, there'll be a coup or a overthrow mm-hmm. or revolution, you know, kind of thing on a small scale or large. And it's, but now we've got all these communication means, ability to tell story, to understand stuff, to see if we can calmly convince people of real truths and rationalities as best as we can have access and can understand them. So it seems quite important to me Mm -hmm. to do that work because we may have a, again, a nonviolent means of change and revolution. Revolution is a strong word, but... Nonviolent... Physically, well, it's mean. it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, that's yeah. all I'm saying. It's you know yeah. what I mean. There's plenty of casualties, so to speak, from you know the people being the way they are online or on Twitter. Still, it still could be abusive and harmful and hurtful. I, I recognize that, yeah, but yeah. what a big step to have the power to work for Christianity to work on its own self, for instance, is which I'm particularly interested in. Yes. The ability of Christianity to work on its own self instead of simply, you know, have do inquisitions and crusades and stuff. Like there's Lord a there's a mercy. way there's we have a way a lot to do of work it. To do on our own selves, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. But but it's worth getting into and doing. And part of that is tell, telling it seems like part of that is for people to to just Figure out the non-charged way to come out and just tell the truth. Is that is it not that simple? No, it is not that simple. Okay, tell me. Because I think when you say the non-charged way, do the best you can to just tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Well, do the best you can. I think I would put yeah. it in a different category. But here, I got to do my little philosophical Go assessment of uh, the non-charged way. What I hear in that is the depersonalized way. Depersonalized. I would because, say depolarized, but depersonalized is okay. But that what I hear in that is you know. Don't be so passionate about it. But the things we know, we know personally. True. And so it's going to be charged if I believe it deeply, um, if it's very, very much a part of my experience. There is going to be some charge in it. Mm-hmm. And then you say, in a non-charged way, just tell the truth. Well, that makes it sound like truth is just this, could could potentially be this obvious objective thing that if everybody just looks at the same thing, you're all going to see it. But that's not going to be the case either, because we're all going to be looking through different experiences, mm-hmm. through different filters, you know, through different lenses, if you will. That's not to deny. I'm not saying there's no, you know, truth, no capital T truth at all. I'm just saying it's not that simple. That was your question. It's not mm-hmm. that simple, right? And I'm saying, yeah, it's not actually. Yeah. 
So do the best you can, though. Actually, I think is 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 a is a good approach because uh-huh. do the best you can with who you are, and and with a genuine effort to be seeking to tell truthful stories. And I would want to say to do that in love, um, which means you're trying to be beneficial with what you're saying, and uh, you know, in other words, beneficial to others and. And to do good. Well, then perhaps goodness. when you weigh all the sources, like people will tell you in your newsfeed, you should read the left and the right and all this stuff, whatever. Perhaps there's, perhaps then, instead of trying to get everybody to uniformly tell matter of fact stories and accounts of things, what we're looking for, and maybe what we're on the precipice of with communication, is we're going to be able to just get everything in an aggregate net sense like yes, these people are charged up and really passionate, or uh, even lashing out. So we factor in why would somebody lash out, and of course we know how to listen to somebody lashing out that they don't literally mean every word they say, and they're probably drawing conclusions. But nonetheless, hearing a person lash out, as long as you can understand their frame, can be very helpful in uncovering part of the puzzle. I think so. I mean, we should be learning from somebody that is so passionate and so troubled Mm -hmm. that they would be lashing out. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean a kind of dismissal that you say, oh, well, they're only doing that because blah, blah, blah. It's actually to say, I, I think, to bring a curiosity, to try to understand what drives a person to be passionate in that particular way. Mm-hmm. What do I need to be learning from that? You know, yeah. Maybe there's some way that I need to be shaped. Basically, uh, knowing better, more lovingly and truthfully, I believe, is a process of personal transformation. I need to always be willing to be personally transformed. If the way I know is by looking outward from me into the world, then me should be constantly changing and transforming, I believe, transforming into Christ-likeness. The more Mm -hmm. I'm transformed into Christ-likeness, the more truly and lovingly I will know whatever it is that I know. So I should be listening to just about everybody trying to to learn and and be ongoing, undergoing that process of personal transformation. Yeah, but see, but maybe that's the new element that we're kind of on now is the, the ability to hear from everybody. We not have that's that true. Right? We have so. technological means yeah. to potentially just really to hear from everybody. And now our new problem is it's so overwhelming. Yes. I just can't. I have never been able to get myself to just stay on top of the news. The no. best I've done ever has been, and I haven't even been doing it for the last few weeks. I've tapered off, but listening to the NPR politics podcast over the last year, because mm-hmm. with the election year and everything, that that kind of brought me in. And and I've tried to stay on top of just what's going on in the world just from that little narrow window. Not that that's even like fully diverse or whatever, but I've I've um filled my news feed before with stuff from the left and the right and the you know around the world and the local and everything and I just can't make myself read everything cuz yeah. it's just too much information. Mm-hmm. I'm overwhelmed with and it. And that's prob- the way we yes. all function yes. is we filter and take shortcuts. You it's have the to, only way to be course, a human being in a world with is. this much information. Well, yes. So that's the that's the that's the art the of our time is figuring out how to utilize the good information. I feel like we're in the adolescence of that. And, and here we develop. are creating more information. Right. <laughs> the this, good, this is the good one, though. <laughs> yeah, this is the this one is the good. To. This is the good stuff oh, right here. So, yeah. but uh, which, well, I mean, I do kind of believe that in the sense that I don't think you can listen to real long, like anybody that's super powerful. I mean, if you stick them somewhere and make them talk for three hours, they will be less. They'll be more exposed. 
Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You can't go long for a politician can get up there and read a speech or do this or be powerful, but eventually, you, you the, don't, yeah. The if you hear somebody talk, be exposed. Yes, oh, not yeah. even in an interview mm. or media training. So even this, I don't think of it as an interview. I'm interested in stuff that you have to say, and I feel like you will be exposed for who you are by just sitting here and talking on and a normal level long enough. But that's a good thing. Though. You know, I've been anxious about yeah. that very fact coming in. But so. that's that's the progress in my book is just mm-hmm. trying to put yourself in a I, that's why I like to do things on video. That's why I like to do things live when possible because it just leans into the vulnerability if we're really trying to get to truth and not just power or influence, you know. Yeah, you love to do things that make me nervous. It's, it's actually good for us to spend time hanging out, I think. You have a good effect on me, mostly, I think. Well, the the thing that I'm curious about is, uh, well, I'll tell you what. Why don't we just keep this conversation, basically, I, I think this has been on the non-specific side, but that's okay because this is a really good context. But I would like to go really more in specific about you and your experience. So can we do that? Next time. Yes. Let's do okay. It. So this is a great primer and just interesting to me, just what we've already talked about. But let's take a break and either do this later today or another time or next week. I don't know schedule-wise. But let's do another 45-minute episode where we'll – now that people – do you feel like now people have gotten to hear from you enough to understand? Yeah, I think at least to know some now of the gears that are it. turning in my in my mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we talked about love and engineering and epistemology mm-hmm. and culture mm-hmm. and power dynamics yep. and, and stuff that I spend so much time thinking about. So, yeah. Okay, so then let's let's come back then um, yeah. and do some specifics. Okay, great. Sound good? Yeah, that's good. Okay, thanks, Mike. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh. Never heard of stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.